This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Crandall, Fremont, California, October 2006. The Yosemite by John Muir. Section 25, Chapter 16, Hetch Hetchy Valley. Yosemite is so wonderful that we are apt to regard it as an exceptional creation, the only valley of its kind in the world. But nature is not so poor as to have only one of anything. Several other Yosemites have been discovered in the Sierra that occupy the same relative positions on the range, and were formed by the same forces in the same kind of granite. One of these, the Hetch Hetchy Valley, is in the Yosemite National Park, about twenty miles from Yosemite, and is easily accessible to all sorts of travelers by a road and trail that leaves the Big Oak Flat Road at Bronson Meadows a few miles below Crane Flat, and to Mountaineers by way of Yosemite Creek Basin and the head of the middle fork of the Tuolumne. It is said to have been discovered by Joseph Screech, a hunter, in 1850, a year before the discovery of the Great Yosemite, after my first visit to it in the autumn of 1871, I have always called it the Tuolumne Yosemite, for it is a wonderfully exact counterpart of the Merced Yosemite, not only in its sublime rocks and waterfalls, but in the gardens, groves, and meadows of its flowery, park-like floor. The floor of Yosemite is about 4,000 feet above the sea, the Hetch Hetchy floor about 3,700 feet. And, as the Merced River flows through Yosemite, so does the Tuolumne through Hetch Hetchy. The walls of both are gray granite, rise abruptly from the floor, and are sculpted in the same style, and, in both, every rock is a glacier monument. Standing boldly out from the south wall is a strikingly picturesque rock, called by the Indians Kolana, the outermost of a group 2,300 feet high corresponding with the cathedral rocks of Yosemite, both in relative position and form. On the opposite side of the valley, facing Colana, there is a counterpart of the El Capitan, that rises sheer and plain to a height of 1,800 feet, and over its massive brow flows a stream, which makes the most graceful fall I have ever seen. From the edge of the cliff to the top of an earthquake talus, it is perfectly free in the air for a thousand feet, before it is broken into cascades among talus boulders. It is in all its glory in June, when the snow is melting fast, but fades and vanishes toward the end of summer. The only fall, I know, with which it may be fairly compared, is the Yosemite Bridal Veil, but it excels even that favorite fall both in height and airy fairy beauty and behavior. Lowlanders are apt to suppose that mountain streams in their wild career over cliffs lose control of themselves, and tumble in a noisy chaos of mist and spray. On the contrary, on no part of their travels are they more harmonious and self-controlled. Imagine yourself in Hetch Hetchy on a sunny day in June, standing waist-deep in grass and flowers, as I have often stood, while the great pines sway dreamily with scarcely perceptible motion. Looking northward across the valley, you see a plain gray granite cliff rising abruptly out of the gardens and groves to a height of 1,800 feet, and in front of it, Tuilala's silvery scurf burning with irised sunfire. 
In the first white outburst at the head there is an abundance of visible energy, but it is speedily hushed and concealed in divine repose, and its tranquil progress to the base of the cliff is like that of a downy feather in a still room. Now observe the fineness and marvellous distinctness of the various sun-illumined fabrics into which the water is woven. They sift and float from form to form down the face of that grand grey rock in so leisurely and unconfused a manner that you can imagine their texture and patterns and tones of colour as you would a piece of embroidery held in the hand. Toward the top of the fall you see groups of booming, comet-like masses, their solid white heads separate, their tails like comb silk interlacing among delicate grey and purple shadows, ever forming and dissolving, worn out by friction in their rush through the air. Most of these vanish a few hundred feet below the summit, changing to varied forms of cloud-like drapery. Near the bottom, the width of the fall has increased from about twenty-five feet to a hundred feet. Here it is composed of yet finer tissues, and is still without a trace of disorder, air, water, and sunlight woven into stuff that spirits might wear. So fine a fall might well seem sufficient to glorify any valley, but here, as in Yosemite, nature seems in no wise moderate. For a short distance to the eastward of Tuilala booms and thunders the great Hetch Hetchy Fall, Wapama, so near that you have both of them in full view from the same standpoint. It is the counterpart of the Yosemite Fall, but has a much greater volume of water, is about seventeen hundred feet in height, and appears to be nearly vertical, though considerably inclined, and is dashed into huge outbounding bosses of foam, on projecting shelves and knobs. No two falls could be more unlike, Tuilala, out in the open sunshine descending like thistledown, Wapama, in a jagged shadowy gorge roaring and plundering, pounding its way like an earthquake avalanche. Besides this glorious pair, there is a broad, massive fall on the main river, a short distance above the head of the valley. Its position is something like that of the Vernal in Yosemite, and its roar, as it plunges into a surging trout-pool, may be heard a long way, though it is only about twenty feet high. On Rancheria Creek, a large stream, corresponding in position with the Yosemite Tenaya Creek, there is a chain of cascades joined here and there with swift flashing plumes, like the one between the Vernal and Nevada Falls, making magnificent shows as they go their glacier-sculptured way, sliding, leaping, hurrying, covered with crisp clashing spray, made glorious with sifting sunshine. And besides all these, a few small streams come over the walls at wide intervals, leaping from ledge to ledge with bird-like song, and watering many a hidden cliff-garden and fernery. But they are too unshowy to be noticed in so grand a place. The correspondence between the hetch-hetchy walls in their trends, sculpture, physical structure, and general arrangement of the main rock-masses, and those of the Yosemite Valley, has excited the wondering admiration of every observer. We have seen that the El Capitan and Cathedral rocks occupy the same relative positions in both valleys. So also do their Yosemite points and north domes. Again, that part of the Yosemite north wall, immediately to the east of the Yosemite fall, has two horizontal benches, about five hundred and fifteen hundred feet above the floor, timbered with golden cup oak. 
Two benches, similarly situated and timbered, occur on the same relative position of the Hetchachi north wall, to the east of Wapama Fall, and on no other. The Yosemite is bounded at the head by the great half-dome. Hetchachi is bounded in the same way, though its head-rock is incomparably less wonderful and sublime in form. The floor of the valley is about three and a half miles long, and from a fourth to half a mile wide. The lower portion is mostly a level meadow, about a mile long, with the trees restricted to the sides and the river-banks, and partially separated from the main upper forested portion by a low bar of glacier-polished granite across which the river breaks in rapids. The principal trees are the yellow and sugar pines, digger pine, incense cedar, douglas spruce, silver fir, the California and golden cup oaks, balsam cottonwood, nuttalls flowering dogwood, alder, maple, laurel, tumion, etc. The most abundant and influential are the great yellow or silver pines like those of Yosemite, the tallest over two hundred feet in height, and the oaks assembled in magnificent groves with massive rugged trunks four to six feet in diameter, and broad, shady, wide-spreading heads. The shrubs, forming conspicuous flowery clumps and tangles, are manzanita, azalea, spirea, briar-rose, several species of chianathus, calicanthus, philadelphus, wild cherry, etc., with abundance of showy and fragrant herbaceous plants growing about them or out in the open in beds by themselves, lilies, mariposa tulips, brodieas, orchids, iris, sprigea, draperia, colomia, colinsia, castilleja, nemophila, larkspur, columbine, goldenrod sunflowers, mints of many species, honeysuckle, etc. Many fine ferns dwell here also, especially the beautiful and interesting rock ferns, paella, and chilianthes of several species, fringing and rosetting dry rock piles and ledges, woodwardia and asplenium on damp spots with fronds six or seven feet high, the delicate maidenhair in mossy nooks by the falls, and the sturdy broad-shouldered terrace, covering nearly all the dry ground beneath the oaks and pines. It appears, therefore, that Hetch Hetchy Valley, far from being a plain, common, rock-bound meadow, as many who have not seen it seem to suppose, is a grand landscape garden, one of nature's rarest and most precious mountain temples. As in Yosemite, the sublime rocks of its walls seem to glow with life, whether leaning back in repose, or standing erect in thoughtful attitudes, giving welcome to storms and calms alike, their brows in the sky, their feet set in the groves and gay flowery meadows, while birds, bees, and butterflies help the river and waterfalls to stir all the air into music, things frail and fleeting, and types of permanence meeting here and blending, just as they do in Yosemite, to draw her lovers into close and confiding communion with her. Sad to say, this most precious and sublime feature of the Yosemite National Park, one of the greatest of all our natural resources for the uplifting joy and peace and health of the people, is in danger of being dammed and made into a reservoir to help supply San Francisco with water and light, thus flooding it from wall to wall and burying its gardens and groves one or two hundred feet deep. 
this grossly destructive commercial scheme has long been planned and urged, though water as pure and abundant can be got from outside of the people's park in a dozen different places, because of the comparative cheapness of the dam and of the territory which it is sought to divert from the great uses to which it was dedicated in the Act of 1890 establishing the Yosemite National Park. The making of gardens and parks goes on with civilization all over the world, and they increase both in size and number as their value is recognized. Everybody needs beauty as well as bread, places to play in and pray in, where nature may heal and cheer and give strength to body and soul alike. This natural beauty hunger is made manifest in the little window-sill gardens of the poor, though perhaps only by a geranium slip in a broken cup, as well as in the carefully tended rose and lily gardens of the rich, the thousands of spacious city parks and botanical gardens, and, in our magnificent national parks, the Yellowstone, Yosemite, Sequoia, etc., nature's sublime wonderlands, the admiration and joy of the world. Nevertheless, like anything else worth while, from the very beginning, however well guarded, they have always been subject to attack by despoiling gain-seekers and mischief-makers of every degree, from Satan to senators, eagerly trying to make everything immediately and selfishly commercial, with schemes disguised in smug-smiling philanthropy, industriously, champiously crying, conservation, conservation, pan-utilization, that man and beast may be fed and the dear nation made great. Thus long ago a few enterprising merchants utilized the Jerusalem temple as a place of business, instead of a place of prayer, changing money, buying and selling cattle and sheep and doves, and earlier still the first forest reservation, including only one tree, was likewise despoiled. Ever since the establishment of the Yosemite National Park, strife has been going on around its borders, and I suppose this will go on as part of the universal battle between right and wrong, however much its boundaries may be shorn, or its wild beauty destroyed. The first application to the government by the San Francisco supervisors for the commercial use of Lake Eleanor and the Hetch Hetchy Valley was made in 1903, and on December 22nd of that year it was denied by the Secretary of the Interior, Mr. Hitchcock, who truthfully said, Presumably the Yosemite National Park was created such by law, because within its boundaries, inclusive of like of its beautiful small lakes like Eleanor, and its majestic wonders like Hetch Hetchy and Yosemite Valley, it is the aggregation of such natural, scenic features that makes the Yosemite Park a wonderland, which the Congress of the United States sought by law to reserve for all coming time, as nearly as practicable in the condition fashioned by the hand of the Creator, a worthy object of national pride, and a source of healthful pleasure and rest for the thousands of people who may annually sojourn there during the heated months. In 1907, when Mr. Garfield became Secretary of the Interior, the application was renewed and granted, but under his successor, Mr. Fisher, the matter has been referred to a commission, which, as this volume goes to press, still has it under consideration. The most delightful and wonderful campgrounds in the park are its three great valleys, Yosemite, Hetch Hetchy, and Upper Tuolumne, and they are also the most important places with reference to their positions, 
relative to the other great features, the Merced and Tuolumne Canyons, and the high Sierra peaks and glaciers, etc., at the head of the rivers. The main part of the Tuolumne Valley is a spacious flowery lawn, four or five miles long, surrounded by magnificent snowy mountains, slightly separated from other beautiful meadows, which together make a series about twelve miles in length, the highest reaching to the feet of Mount Dana, Mount Gibbs, Mount Lyell, and Mount McClure. It is about 8,500 feet above the sea, and forms the Grand Central High Sierra campground from which excursions are made to the noble mountains, domes, glaciers, etc., across the range to the Mono Lake and volcanoes, and down the Tuolumne Canyon to Hetch Hetchy. Should Hetch Hetchy be submerged for a reservoir, as proposed, not only would it be utterly destroyed, but the sublime canyon way to the heart of the High Sierra would be hopelessly blocked and the great camping-ground, as the watershed of a city-drinking system, virtually would be closed to the public. So far as I have learned, few of all the thousands who have seen the park and seek rest and peace in it are in favor of this outrageous scheme. One of my later visits to the valley was made in the autumn of 1907 with the late William Keith, the artist. The leaf-colors were then ripe, and the great godlike rocks in repose seemed to glow with life. The artist, under their spell, wandered day after day along the river and through the groves and gardens, studying the wonderful scenery, and after making about forty sketches, declared with enthusiasm that although its walls were less sublime in height, in picturesque beauty and charm, Hetch Hetchy surpassed even Yosemite that any one would try to destroy such a place seems incredible, but sad experience shows that there are people good enough and bad enough for anything. The proponents of the dam scheme bring forward a lot of bad arguments, to prove that the only righteous thing to do with the people's parks is to destroy them bit by bit as they are able. Their arguments are curiously like those of the devil, devised for the destruction of the first garden, so much of the very best Eden fruit going to waste, so much of the best Tuolumne water and Tuolumne scenery going to waste. Few of their statements are even partly true, and all are misleading. Thus, Hetch Hetchy, they say, is a low-lying meadow. On the contrary, it is a high-lying natural landscape garden, as the photographic illustrations show. It is a common minor feature like thousands of others. On the contrary, it is a very uncommon feature. After Yosemite, the rarest, and in many ways the most important, in the National Park. Damming and submerging it 175 feet deep would enhance its beauty by forming a crystal-clear lake. Landscape gardens, places of recreation, and worship are never made beautiful by destroying and burying them. The beautiful sham lake, forsooth, should be only an eyesore, a dismal blot on the landscape, like many others to be seen in the Sierra. For, instead of keeping it at the same level all the year, allowing nature centuries of time to make new shores, it would of course be full only a month or two in the spring, when the snow is melting fast. Then it would be gradually drained, exposing the slimy sides of the basin and shallower parts of the bottom, with the gathered drift and waste, death and decay of the upper basins, caught here instead of being swept onto decent natural burial, along the banks of the river or in the sea. 
Thus the Hetch Hetchy Dam Lake would be only a rough imitation of a natural lake for a few of the spring months, an open sepulchre for the others. Hetch Hetchy water is the purest of all to be found on the Sierra, unpolluted and forever unpollutable. On the contrary, excepting that of the Merced below Yosemite, it is less pure than that of most of the other Sierra streams, because of the sewage of campgrounds draining into it, especially of the big Tuolumne Meadows campground, occupied by hundreds of tourists and mountaineers, with their animals, for months every summer, soon to be followed by thousands from all the world. These temple destroyers, devotees of ravaging commercialism, seem to have a perfect contempt for nature, and, instead of lifting their eyes to the god of the mountains, lift them to the almighty dollar. Damn Hetch Hetchy! As well damn for water tanks the people's cathedrals and churches, for no holier temple has ever been consecrated by the heart of man. End of section 16 End of The Yosemite by John Muir